Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 295. We're brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, your trusted window and door replacement expert of Greater Maine. Call 207-275-6622 or visit RenewalByAnderson.com, the better way to a better window. Rich Kimball here with you. Just one guest this week. She's one of our favorites on the podcast and our radio program, historian Heather Cox Richardson, author of a number of books, including her latest, Democracy Awakening. She also sends out every morning to millions of followers her Letters to an American. Analysis of the news through the lens of history. We talked about, uh, well, all manner of historical subjects with Heather Cox Richardson here on Downtown. Heather, welcome back. Oh, it's always such a pleasure to be here, Rich. This is my favorite radio show in the country. Oh, thank you. The check is in the mail. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, we know that uh, you're a favorite of ours, but, you know, it's not just us. I have to ask you this. Were you a fan of MASH? Oh, yeah. All right, oh, yeah. I, I think oh, you yeah. might like this. Mike Farrell, B.J. Hanika, was on a few weeks ago with us, and as we were wrapping up the interview, well, this is what he had to say. I, I always enjoy talking to you. And I have to say I envy you. You say you have the opportunity to speak to uh, Heather Cox Richardson uh, often. Uh, I, I am a huge fan of that woman, and uh, and her. I read her regularly, and am just... Uh, I, I'm envious of you for having the time with that you do. How about that, huh? Wow, isn't that sweet? But you know what's really cool about you know getting older and being able to look back on the way lives braid together is that you know you never know what you're going to do that's going to influence the future. So you know one of the things about Mash was that of course the the guy who wrote it was from here in Maine. And the idea that somebody in Maine could write books that would become TV shows that would influence people around the world, even as a kid, I thought that was totally cool. And now here we are, you know, I was a kid like 14 years ago, so we're like 14 years later, and um, and now one of those guys is saying I'm influencing him. Isn't that cool? Full circle. It's a wonderful thing. We uh, we think of it as the downtown family. Uh, it's It's so funny so often i'll look on social media and i'll see a couple people who've been on the show interacting and and think well i didn't know they knew each other but how great that they do and they're they're a small part of our orbit as well that's one of the things social media has enabled us to do i think is to make the world a bit smaller and that's not a bad thing no not at all well you've been so busy uh, with the tour for the recent book Uh, how has that been going and where have you been lately Speaking of the world being small, I've been all over the United States, which is really where I operate, and um, and met new people, new friends all over, and then discovered many of them new other friends, uh, which is really, again, a, a cool a cool feeling. I've been to California repeatedly and just got back from Florida and from I'm to Washington, D.C. and New York City, and one of the things – and, and – um, Texas a lot, and we're going to be off soon to Ohio and Wisconsin and um, Mississippi and Tennessee. And 
Well, you know, one of the things that, that's really cool about that is that when you're in these different places, people want to show you their towns and what they really care about in their towns. So you don't really get the tourist version. You get, hey, this is what I really think is cool about where I live. So I have seen the Baha'i Temple in Evanston, Illinois, which I didn't even know we had. Wow. I got the history behind the Grand Old Opry, Ryman, Stadium, uh, Ryman Auditorium, Um the, uh, the the person who took me around to L.A. showed me, he said, we need to see Beverly Hills, but we need to see not the front of the, the buildings, but the back of them, because they're really cool, too. So we went through alleyways behind the mansions at Beverly Hills. And one of the other things he insisted on showing me that you'll appreciate was the Whiskey at Go-Go and the Troubadour. Oh, nice. I assumed, in my mind, the Troubadour is huge and Whiskey at Go-Go, same thing. They're really small. <laughs> like, if you didn't know they were there, you wouldn't know they were there. Wow. So so it's been really cool meeting a lot of great people, seeing a lot of this great country, and, and again, revising a lot of stuff I thought I knew. Well, so let me ask you this from your, your travels around America. My theory, and maybe it's just the optimist in me, is that uh, because we get caught up in the day-to-day events and everything that's going on, that we we seem to be caught up in the divisions that are out there. I want to believe that when you go around America, we're we're not as divided as it would appear. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, people. Most people are just people. And you know, to to switch it into professional mode here, any poll that's done over issues rather than over people or political parties. The vast majority of Americans are really absolutely on the same page. The problem is it became politically uh, advantageous to demonize your 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 opponents and turn them into enemies. And one of the things that I'm always trying to do is to say, you know, what we really need to do is to have a fact-based public discussion. And then that doesn't mean we're all going to agree at all, but it does mean that we're all operating with the same deck of cards. And then you, you, you hash it out, which is exactly what we do in our personal lives and in our local lives and, you know, in a place like Maine at the state level, not so much in some of the other states. And then with luck, we can get it back to the national level as well. We're talking with Heather Cox Richardson here on Downtown. I was so excited to see you and our friend uh, Joanne Freeman back together on social media the other day talking history. That was so cool. Yeah, and we'll do a lot more of those, I think. And I'll be much more on Instagram as well, doing sort of a reaction to the day's news. But there are some things that happen when you just know you have to run it by a person who knows the early republic, and that's Joanne. And one of those things is violence. So when violence popped up once again the other day after um, Libs of TikTok had called some had, had posted something and 33 different uh, bomb threats could be traced to that. I'm like, you know what? This isn't just somebody called it a hoax. And it's like, no, once is a hoax. 33 times is a pattern. And who knows about a pattern like that better than Joanne Freeman? Well, and you two talked about the way that people use language to uh, provide a little buffer between themselves and the actual acts, but to inspire others to commit violence. Yeah, and, you know, that's what really, aside from all the the politics and all this other, that's what really gets to me is that it's sort of the ultimate form of power to induce somebody else to do something that is illegal, violent, um, you know, devastating. And so your hands are clean. And, you know, one of the ways I learned about this, what I wanted to say when I was talking to Joanne and I couldn't, so I'm glad to do it here, is that Agatha Christie's last murder mystery was a book called Curtain. 
And the whole premise of that book was that there were all these murders that Hercule Poirot was supposed to be investigating or was investigating, but they were – and the, the, the person who committed the murder was very clear. But they were always acting somewhat out of character. And what the whole book was about – and this is a spoiler, so if you want to read the book, don't, don't listen any longer um, – was that they were put up to it by a guy who knew just what triggers to push – to make, you know, a mild-mannered husband crack and kill his wife or to make, you know, somebody crack and kill a teacher or whatever. And and the whole thing was premised on Othello because in Shakespeare's Othello, you know, Othello kills so many people in that play that, you know, when we were kids reading it, we used to kind of laugh about it because, you know, there's like a bed that keeps getting piled up with bodies. <laughs> And um, but but while Othello does the murders, it's Yago who puts him up to it. You know, Yago's the one whispering in his ear, "Oh, your wife is cheating on right. you. Oh, they're making fun of you." And and that idea that you can use words in such a way that your hands stay clean, the way a mafioso boss does, for example, and you induce other people to do things that, that accomplish your ends, but they're the ones who go to prison. First of all, we're seeing that in a number of places around here, but it also just infuriates me because, yeah, you know, you can look and say he's the one who committed the murder, he's the one who committed the violence, but he never would have done it if he hadn't been put up to it by this guy who's sitting over there in a suit grinning. Well, and that ties into something you wrote about in the recent book, which is that one of the keys to the success of authoritarians is the use of both language and false history. Yeah. Yeah, well, again, this use of language to convince people of something that is not true, of course, has been around forever in, in human society, but has really been weaponized in a number of countries, but in the United States, since at least the 1980s, where the, the idea of a fact-based reality on which people can make good decisions about their lives has been eclipsed by the idea of creating this vision of good Americans who stand for a certain set of values who are against those others. And the truth is not represented by that at all. Literally, in, in, if you jump ahead to the present, you have senators like Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee who just flat-out lies. I mean, what she is saying is absolutely not true. And if anybody follows me on social media, you know that, that I, I try never to be mean on social media, but, she, but I lose it with her. I just call <laughs> her out again and again and again, because if you take away somebody's right to have access to accurate information, you are taking away their right to make good decisions about their lives. The same way that if you were in a business with somebody and and they didn't tell you that they were secretly making a plan to take all of your clients to a different business, you know, you couldn't make good decisions about getting a, a second mortgage to back the business or any of the things that you would have to do. So when somebody just flat out lies to you about politics, it just, again, makes me just furious because it's, it's a, essentially an assault on humans being able to make good decisions about their lives. And that's been a technique, really, again, that we've seen in the United States since the 1980s really ramping up. But it's actually there's a political theory behind it that was articulated best in Russia in, you know, in the, 19, in the 2000 aughts, really called political technology or virtual politics, where you use lies, essentially, or disinformation 
to create a, 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 a vision of the world that people think is real, that it really isn't. And then they make decisions based on that version they think is real. And pretty soon they end up with an authoritarian in charge, the way Putin is, for example. And you mentioned the other and stoking that fear of the other, which is an old item from the playbook that may, may go back certainly to the 1950s, if not earlier. Nixon exploited that in his campaign in 1968. Reagan, of course, took it to new heights, and, and now uh, Trump has, has made it the coin of the realm. Indeed. Indeed. And the, the thing that's really interesting to me right now is some of the stuff now that Trump and the Trump Republicans, and I always like to make the distinction here, between traditional Republicans who, and, you know, I'm the historian of the Republican Party, and these people who now call themselves MAGA Republicans or Trump Republicans who have explicitly rejected democracy. You know, they have explicitly said they want to get rid of democracy because they believe that it weakens the society by letting in immigrants and by permitting people who are LGBTQ plus or women or people of color to have equal rights before the law. That's not traditional Republican. Like that, that was never what the Republican Party stood for. So I like to make that distinction. But what I'm watching right now, one of the things I'm watching right now is that those mega Republicans, the stuff that they're saying is so over the top that it's mostly just a way to identify culturally, I think, um, because people can't possibly believe some of this stuff. <laughs> well, and, and you've written so much about this, but so many in that movement want to see uh, what Hungary has done and others, uh, what, what is called illiberal democracy. For anybody who doesn't know what that, that term is, can you explain? Yes, and that's really important. If you think about the the fact that Tucker Carlson, who used to be a personality on the Fox News channel, or um, CPAC, as it's known, the Conservative Political Action Conference, um, those those markers of the far right Republican Party, those what are now the MAGA Republicans or the Trump Republicans, the reason that they have been cozying up to Viktor Orban of Hungary. So by, by going, for example, over and holding conferences in Hungary or inviting him to come speak at CPAC, or for a while, uh, Tucker Carlson actually broadcast some shows from Hungary. Um, the reason they're doing that is because they admire uh, what he has done in his country, which is to overturn democracy and replace it with um, what, again, what he calls illiberal democracy, the idea that um, – that treating LGBTQ plus people as having equal rights, women as having equal rights, uh, people of color as having equal rights, permitting immigration into your into your society will weaken it. And so um, democracy itself needs to be overturned. I saw an interview recently, I think it was maybe before the Iowa caucuses, and there were a couple different voters who said something along the lines of, this country could use a dictator. Is that is that ignorance of history, or is it just people getting caught up in the emotion of this movement? Um, well, I'm going to give you a third option. It might be um, a, a lack of knowledge of history because a dictatorship never goes well, including for those people who supported it in the first place. Right. Um, because the whole idea of a dictator is to put himself in power and not treat people equally. So, for example, when Hitler rose to power... The people who supported him were among the first who were, were their wages were cut. They were not able to um, to determine whether or not they were going into the army and so on. 
Um, but I think more than that, it goes back to that language thing. You know, if you have heard, as so many people who don't pay close attention to politics have, for decades now, that the idea of um, letting Democrats have power in a society, let, letting them rule, letting them, you know, be in charge of the White House is going to bring on essentially Armageddon. You know, they're going to destroy the country. They're socialists. They're communists. They're you know, ruining children, they're grooming children. If you're hearing all these markers that say that other is is dangerous and is going to destroy America, you know, I think you can make the calculation, one can make the calculation that it is better to destroy them altogether than it is to let them have any power. So you need to get rid of democracy so that they don't have a voice. And that's really quite deliberate. That's how authoritarians rise. Heather Cox Richardson with us here on Downtown. We'll pause just a moment for a word from our friends at Renewal by Anderson and then back with more of our conversation right after this on Downtown. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. Are you ready to fall in love with your home again? Are you ready to transform your home with new windows and doors that'll stand the test of time? Look no further than Renewal by Anderson. This is owner Troy Pearl to tell you that our signature service is designed to take you seamlessly from start to finish, ensuring a stress-free experience in your window and door replacement journey. At Renewal by Anderson, we understand the importance of quality craftsmanship and unmatched expertise. And here's the exciting news. We're extending an exclusive offer just for you this February. Enjoy employee pricing with $300 off each window and $600 off each door. That's right, $300 off every window you buy and $600 off every door. To schedule your free in-home, no-obligation consultation, visit us at rbagreatermain.com. That's rbagreatermain.com. The better way to a better window. Renewal by Anderson. back on downtown and now back to more of our conversation with historian heather cox richardson the supreme court has got some decisions to make uh, certainly they may not rise to the level of uh, brown versus the board of education uh, roe v wade maybe even citizens united but uh, especially in in what we're likely to hear next week uh, this could be a pretty profound decision by the court if they decide, as it seems they might, that no president is above the law and Trump does not have absolute immunity. Yeah, and that's a no-brainer. I mean, the, the the you can't possibly have a president be able to commit crimes in office because then they would never leave. And I mean, that I don't think we really even have to think much more about that one. That's just a no-brainer. I'm actually more interested in this um this decision that involves what's called the Chevron Doctrine, because that could completely gut the, the the modern American government. And that's the idea that the Congress can set up agencies, as they have really since George, George Washington, within the executive branch, and then trust those agencies to make regulations that make sense. Those can be challenged in court, but it initially hands off the ability to make those regulations to those the people in those agencies. And they, the Supreme Court has started to cut way back on that by inventing a doctrine called um, the Major Questions Doctrine, 
And that's the idea that, no, in fact, Congress can't turn things over to the executive branch to make decisions, over to agencies in the executive branch, and that, and that Congress has to actually determine itself all the pieces of regulation. And if that were the case, the, the modern American government's in real trouble. It would, it would grind it to a halt, and it would grind regulation to a halt as well, which is, I, I think, the, the point. It would enable uh, businesses to do whatever they wished. Well, and it's another example, as you've written about, of the minority attempting to overrule the majority. Yeah, and that's really what we're talking about here, right? The idea that the the only reason you pull any of this stuff, the language or, you know, taking over the Supreme Court or, you know, trying to undermine an election, the only reason you do any of that is because you know you don't have the majority. If you if you know you're going to win an election, you don't care who votes. You don't care about there being an opposition. You only try and silence an opposition when you know you're in the minority. And that's, you know, that should worry everybody, because if you get a situation where a minor, where a minority takes over the government and gets to do whatever it wants, it's only a question of time until we all lose rights. And you're seeing this in a number of Republican-dominated states around the country where you've had, um, you know, referenda where, where the voters say, hey, we really want you know, ex-felons to be able to vote, for example, or we really want to have reproductive rights, or we really want to have, you know, get rid of political gerrymandering and have the citizens themselves decide what the districts are going to be. And the the gerrymandered Republican-dominated legislatures have said, oh, it's too bad. We don't care what you want. We're not going to let that pass. And that's the really scary position to be in. Trump is is such an imperfect vessel for the hopes and dreams uh, of that group in the Republican Party. But why has he been the guy that so many have attached themselves to? So, you know, people, there's this big discussion in the United States about whether Trump is just a continuation of the Republican Party or whether he's something different. And I think the answer to that is both. He rose in 2016 as a continuation of the, the Republican Party, used the rhetoric of the Republican Party. And people nowadays forget that he was the most economically progressive Republican on the stage in 2016. Right. He called for uh, bringing back manufacturing. He called for fixing the tax loopholes. He called for cheaper and better health care. He called for infrastructure, um, most of which, by the way, Biden has gone on to pass. But um but, of course, he dropped that once he got into office and he continued the whole trickle-down economics of the Republican Party with his 2017 tax cuts. So during that period, when he was once he was in office, he took those people who had followed him based on his, on his sort of rhetoric and his, you know, sort of sexist and racist dog whistles, and he turned them into a movement. And he turned him into an authoritarian movement. And that's really important because in the United States, the way you do that is you get people to start engaging in street violence, you know, start challenging governors, start Mm. turning out and complaining about something. And then once they have done that, once they have started to uh, be either rhetorically or physically violent because of something you have said, that makes them very susceptible to being politically radicalized, and it weds them to you because they need you to stay in office or they're going to get in trouble. And that's, this is new in our history. We've certainly had um, people like him in the United States before, but they have not been the leaders of uh, a major political party. So where can we look in our history 
to find a path back to democracy, majority rule, and, and what we think of as normal American government? Well, we can look at it in, in the 1850s and in the 1890s. And, you know, one of the reasons that my last book was called Democracy Awakening is because we were not in that dissimilar a place in the 1850s. And, of course, we had a small group of elite Southern enslavers who took over the government and quite literally said they were going to rule it. Uh, and they were going to, to make the entire um, uh, United States a slaveholding nation. And from there, they were going to dominate the world. And when that happened, when they took over the White House and the Supreme Court and the Senate, and the only place that the, the Northerners who stood for free labor were still had dominant, you know, still had dominance was in the House of Representatives. And in 1854, when it became clear that those elite Southerners had also been able to get a major law that enabled them to spread their vision around the country, um, through Congress, through the House, Americans around the country, actually led by people here in Maine, um, Israel Washburn, Elihu Washburn, and um, and uh, I think it was Ted Walliter Washburn were all in Congress together at the time, although they were from different states at that point. They got together and they said, listen, we may not agree with each other on finance or on immigration or on um, internal improvement, but we can agree that if we lose American democracy, this country will have fallen and we will never be able to reclaim it. And so they began to work together as the brand new Republican Party by 1856. By 1859, um, Abraham Lincoln had given them an ideology that said the government should work for ordinary Americans rather than for the very wealthy enslavers. By 1860, they had put him in the White House. And by 1863, he had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, getting rid of human enslavement, except his punishment for crime as the basis of American society. And by November of 1863, he had called for Americans to defend a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So in less than a decade, nine years, the country went from, hey, we're handing it all over to a small group of elite enslavers so they can make as much money as they want and rule over the rest of us, to we're going to have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And you quote Lincoln in the final chapter of your book talking about that struggle for self-determination. He said, the one is the common right of humanity and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. Yes, and I like that. I like the idea that when we think about um, the, the Civil War, and there's so many different ways to talk about it, what was really important to Lincoln was the, the preservation of democracy, the preservation of the idea that people have the right to determine their own futures. And that's kind of what we're looking at right now. I, when you get back to the, the decision you were talking about, you know, does a president in office have the, the immunity for criminal behavior? That is, can a president do whatever he wants in office so long as it can be defined at least vaguely as being part of his duties, as in what happened on January 6th and the attempt to overturn the, the, the American people's choice of president in the 2020 presidential election, is that, is that really uh, anything different than the divine right of kings, which is what Lincoln was talking about there, and which the founders, of course, said, no, we want to have a new kind of government here in the United States, and, or here in North America. It wasn't the United States then. And um, 
And we're going to do that by creating a nation built on laws. Kind of exciting, actually, to be part of this sort of epic struggle. Heather Cox Richardson, if you don't already subscribe to her Letters from an American, pretty easy to do. You can go online and sign up for that and get Heather's take on the world and the news through the lens of history every single morning. Heather, it is so great to catch up with you again. Thanks for being with us today. Always a pleasure, Rich. The great Heather Cox Richardson with us here on Downtown Hour. Thanks to Heather and, of course, thanks to you for being with us this week. Downtown produced by Carrie Haskell and brought to you every week by Renewal by Anderson, the better way to a better window. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.